Good afternoon. I want to welcome you to today's program, The Minnesota Paradox, Progressivism and Inequalities. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a faculty at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs and the Department of Political Science at the University of Minnesota. I'm also director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, which is bringing you today's program. We do many programs, and I want to just mention a few that are coming up in the next month. Uh, President Obama's political guru, David Axelrod, will be joining us with Minnesota Republican uh, Vin Weber on July 9th at noon. Uh, we have a program coming up on Black Lives Matter in the 2020 elections uh, with Ashley Jardina from Duke, Christopher Parker from the University of Washington, LaFore Stevens-Dugan from Princeton, and my colleague in the Department of Political Science here, Michael Minta, who will be moderating and has organized that terrific panel. Um, we also have a program coming up on healthcare, which is part of our series. This is looking at innovation during the COVID um, pandemic. Uh, and it's gonna include Craig Samet, who's president and CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield in Minnesota and prominent Democrat and Republican in the Minnesota State Senate. And then at the end of the month, uh, July 29th, we have a program on American conservatism on July 29th, as I mentioned, and that includes Peter Weiner, uh, who's a well-known um, conservative and he's at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and David Hopkins, who's at Boston College. I'm very pleased uh, to welcome as today's moderator and participant, Dr. Michael Hung. Um, uh, uh, and I want to acknowledge as I do that, that this program is uh, supported by the Scholars Strategy Network. Uh, Dr. Hung is a, um, a good friend of ours. She is a collaborator with uh, some of our programs and we're grateful that she is participating today. Uh, Dr. Hung is the Dean of the College of Health at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. Previously, she was president and CEO of the uh, Wilder Foundation in Minnesota, and she chaired the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank's Board of Directors. Dr. Hong, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. Um, I thought I would set some context for this conversation that we have uh, in all of my different roles in the community and also in academia. Uh, it's really clear that though Minnesota has had a history of progressivism, being progressive and taking actually very progressive action, uh, we are near the bottom for our racial disparities in the state of Minnesota. So today we're joined by uh, two experts, uh, Dr. Sam Myers, who is Roy Wilkins Professor of Human Relations and Social Justice, uh, who also directs the Roy Wilkins Center for Human Relations and Social Justice. Um, he specializes in uh, the impacts of social policies on the poor. And uh, Dr. Myers is an economist and pioneer in the use of applied economic econometric techniques and really coined the term uh, Minnesota paradox. So we'll hear from him. Uh, and we will also be hearing from Dr. Joe Thoss, who is Cole's chair for the study of public service at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Um, Joe is uh, drawing on his many years of training uh, as a political scientist and sociologist uh, he has uh, studied extensively the politics of social inequities and public policy, and he's currently working and co-authoring a book called Praying on the Poor, which really describes how the criminal uh, justice practices in the U.S. 
have been made into tools for turning resources from poor communities of color into corporate profits for government revenues. So I'd like to welcome you both and uh, just say how delighted I am to actually be able to moderate this, this really uh, esteemed group of individuals to have this uh, conversation. So I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Um, Myers first because he coined this term Minnesota paradox and I'd like you to spend Dr. Myers seven to 10 minutes uh, summarizing your thoughts and arguments about the Minnesota paradox. Well, good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> it's clear that uh, I was as surprised as everybody else was when I moved to Minnesota in 1992, uh, because it turns out that the name of the school is the Hubert Humphrey you know, School of Public Affairs, and Hubert Humphrey was the floor leader for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, Hubert Humphrey, when he was the mayor of the city of Minneapolis, was a outspoken advocate for racial justice. And so I was really surprised when I got here. This great state of Minnesota, one of the best places in the world to live, to raise your kids, beautiful lakes, wonderful schools, fantastic uh, cultural scene. I'd really tell you, I was surprised when I discovered the wide racial gaps in virtually every measure of social and economic well-being, unemployment, sentencing, incarceration, test scores, um, I, I just even swimming, even drowning rates. Minnesota had the highest black drowning rate in the country. And how is that possible? for this to be such a great place to live for the majority and for there to be such wide racial gaps. And one of the things I discovered that I talk about in my book, um, Race Neutrality, is that it wasn't always this way. That these wide racial gaps and things like home ownership did not always exist. In fact, in the 1930s and 1940s, the black home ownership rates was the highest of any state in the country. And the gap between black and white home ownership rates was much, much narrower in 1930, 1940 than it was by 2000. And so some of the questions that we need to raise that I'm very, look, very much looking forward to my colleague uh, Dr. Joe Sauce is why. How did it get that way? And that's why we're here today to have a conversation with you talking about the various explanations that have been offered for the paradox of being, number one, one of the best places in the world to live for whites, but number two, being, relatively speaking, one of the worst places for blacks to live. Now I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Sauce. Um, thank you. Uh, I want to start by just saying thanks to the center for organizing uh, this event. 
And I also want to say that um, when you take a job at a university, there are certain things uh, that are uh, things that you'll be doing, duties that, that are not written into the contract. And I didn't know when I came to the Humphrey School that one of the things that wasn't written into the contract was that I would spend a tremendous amount of my time uh, being grateful to and thanking Dr. Myers for uh, having spent years uh, decades pushing on issues that other people were not pushing and drawing our attention to them and forcing us to reckon with them. So uh, today is one opportunity to publicly say that. Um, I want to start by directing our attention uh, 100 years ago from today, uh, back to 1920. This, of course, was the end of the Progressive Era uh, and all the movements associated with it. People here in Minnesota in particular uh, had all sorts of strikes and protests and battles and legislators, legislatures and courts. They broke up monopolies and fought the power of robber barons. Uh, they regulated workplace safety. They established minimum wages, expanded access to the vote, reformed governing institutions. For white Minnesotans, 1920 was the end of three decades of pursuing and achieving in many ways a greater share of wealth, prosperity, and the power to be self-governing. But in these very same decades, if we look back 100 years, Native Americans in Minnesota were continuing to suffer the violent dispossession of land and culture as the Dawes Act became national law and as white Minnesotans forcibly abducted indigenous children and put them in these horrific boarding schools. For black Minnesotans, 1920 saw the brutal lynchings of Elias Clayton and Elmer Jackson and Isaac Guthrie in Duluth. And three years later, Jack Trice came to the Twin Cities as the first black football player for Iowa State. And as the spokesman recorder reported at the time, the Ku Klux Klan rallied at the stadium that day and had its own float in the homecoming parade. The Minnesota Gopher football players assaulted Trice on the field so viciously that he died shortly after the game from the complications. And of course, by 1920, white Minneapolis residents uh, and St. Paul residents had already entered into more than 1,400 restrictive covenants, making binding agreements to only sell their houses to other white people. Within a decade, that number would be 9,000 in Hennepin County, and by 1955, it would be over 21,000. So while homeownership uh, was at some level of equality, who had what kind of houses in what neighborhoods was not. And so here we are, a century from 1920, gathering to ponder the Minnesota paradox. How can Minnesota, with all its progressive policies and attitudes and all its uh, high quality of life indicators, be a national leader in racial inequalities across so many critical areas of social, political, and economic life? And the short answer I want to suggest is that this, how, this is how white Minnesotans built this state all along the way. Viewed from certain perspectives, we can see this as a paradox, but we don't need to see it as a mystery. I think we have to start by connecting rather than just comparing outcomes for different groups. So indigenous people didn't just get left out of white progress in Minnesota. White wealth and security and opportunity were, in an important sense, created by subjugating and stealing from Native Americans in ways that led directly to their poverty and immiseration. Black-white disparities today reflect, in part, decisions about how to invest in black and white communities, as well as the wealth that white people created for themselves by exploiting needs and problems and desperations in black communities that whites themselves had often created. In other words, if we shift our way of thinking from group comparisons and disparities, who does better, who does worse, 
to group relations, who has done what to whom, we begin to see the Minnesota paradox in a different way. White people in Minnesota have done very well in many respects because of how they have exploited and impoverished communities of black, indigenous, and other people of color. In a state that's disproportionately white, these dynamics are going to produce overall indicators of success that look great, right? Because most of the people are white, alongside very large disparities between whites and other racialized groups. But of course, you could tell this story for a lot of states. You could say this about most states in the U.S. So why are Minnesota's racial disparities so big compared with other states? The answer, in part, I want to suggest, lies in the very same progressive policies that make so many people surprised by the Minnesota paradox. To understand why Minnesota has nation-leading black-white disparities, we have to begin by reminding ourselves of what this disparity actually measures. It's the difference between black and white outcomes. These disparities can go up either because black people do worse in Minnesota or because white people do better in our state relative to others. And this is critical because in a lot of areas, Minnesota's high disparities are actually driven not by black people doing significantly worse in Minnesota than in other states, but actually by white people doing significantly better in Minnesota than other states. Consider a comparison between Minnesota and Alabama. On incarceration and education and all sorts of other things, Minnesota has racial disparities that are by a country mile larger than what Alabama produces. Is this because Alabama is somehow a land of opportunity that provides a high quality of life for black people? No. Mostly it's a reflection of how poorly most white people fare in Alabama, a state where taxes are low and regressive and social investments of all sorts are very weak. Whether one is looking at education or incarceration, the numbers for black people in Alabama and Minnesota are so bad they should just stop you in your tracks and force you to, you know, scream. But in Alabama, the numbers for white people are also rotten. Whereas in Minnesota, the numbers for white people stand out as far better than the national average. Mm -hmm. So Joe, so Joe, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there because I think I think you've brought up a really good point, which is. Um, the size of the disparities are perhaps larger in Minnesota and that it's their persistence over time and over categories that, that really matters. So your argument is really that we should, we should look more so at relationships and how we're treating each other. Uh, Dr. Myers, you have actually measured such relationships using uh, some of the uh, research that you have done over the years to uh, really look at the data and look at the evidence of what policies have created the type of racial inequality that we are experiencing in Minnesota. Could you talk about the major factors that are driving um, the uh, inequality in terms of racial disparities and the persistence of that over time? Well, Dr. South is absolutely correct that on uh, most of the measures of social economic well-being, the reason why the gap's so large between blacks and whites between indigenous people whites. I mean, every racial ethnic minority group faces exactly the same gap. I think blacks face some of the biggest gaps. And the reason why we know so little about the gaps among indigenous people is that people use the current population survey, American Community Survey, in order to do their statistical analysis. And uh, we've wiped out, we have virtually uh, eliminated large portions of the indigenous community. But with that said, Dr. South is absolutely correct that 
for many of these indicators of socioeconomic well-being, the reason for the wide gap in Minnesota as compared to the gaps elsewhere is because whites are doing very well. And so the question is, why are whites doing so very well? Okay, and part of the dilemma that I come from as a black economist is the fact that economists as a group have paid more attention to what's wrong with black people. And so they say between blacks and whites, and it kind of turns into a discussion about what's wrong with black people. What is it that's causing them to do so poorly? Is it because they are lazy? Is it because they are less intelligent? Is it because they take advantage of social welfare programs and engage in perverse behaviors like withdrawing from the labor market, like having babies out of wedlock? I mean, that's kind of actually a dominant view within the economics profession that the reason why there's a gap between blacks and whites is there something wrong with black people? So can I take that as a starting point? If there is something wrong with black people, you should be able to measure it, right? And so much of my career has been spent using standard econometric techniques in order to parse out how much of the gap between blacks and whites can be attributable to differences in productivity, differences in qualities, even differences in time that you use working. And what I've discovered is that most of the gap can't be explained of these differences. And there's a word that we use in economics literature to describe this unexplained gap. And I know it's offensive. I realize that not everybody agrees. I realize that in Minnesota, not everybody agrees. But the economics literature has a word to describe situations where statistically you control for all of the observable characteristics that might legally or economically matter and explain the gap. And the part that's left over, the residual, the unexplained gap has a word. Mm-hmm. And it's called discrimination. Mm-hmm. Let me explain why it's harder to use the word discrimination. And by the way, I didn't say racism. I said discrimination, where I define discrimination as differential treatment of identically situated individuals. The reason why in Minnesota it's so very difficult to allege that these gaps are due to discrimination is that Minnesota people deeply believe in egalitarianism. They believe in fairness. And their response is, this is not Alabama. This is not Mississippi. This is Minnesota about good people. And we're not discriminators. And heaven forbid if you allege that we are racist. And here's my response. It is possible for there to be racial discrimination without there being a discriminator. It's possible for there to be racism without there being a racist. Now let me explain what I mean here. What I mean is that institutions begin to reproduce outcomes even without having 
uh, a typical racist. So Dr. Sells mentions the lynching. Let me explain, you're far more likely to be lynched in Alabama than you were to be lynched in, Mississippi, in, uh, in Minnesota. I, I just want to be very clear. Mm -hmm. Tough, tough task to convince our elected officials, to convince our business leaders, to convince individuals in the finance industry, the banking industry, is that I'm not accusing anybody of being racist. Mm -hmm. I'm not accusing anybody of yeah. being a So what Dr. I'm Myers, <laughs> Dr. Myers, I'm gonna I'm gonna oh, cut you off because inequality. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off because I, I think that uh, you made an excellent point, which is you know I've I've heard of uh, people of color who moved to this community call Minnesota nice Minnesota ice, and the, it's the icy uh, cold shoulder treatment uh, with just a benign neglect or not being included in decision making circles. So the history of being progressive and and what Minnesota has typically been been known for, uh, very liberal, and uh, has not necessarily uh, served us well. So some of the chatter um, on, on social media and actually about this particular forum is, uh, how are we uh, not being tangible enough with the words that we use and how, how some of the reproduction of inequality in the systems that you're talking about is actually continuing to disenfranchise uh, different populations. And of course, you know, we have new immigrant communities and refugee communities, so I'm, I'm actually Hmong and I was uh, uh, born in the country of Laos and came in the 70s. So uh, as an Asian American in the fastest growing demographic in the state of Minnesota, actually, the conversations around race and poverty often just um, uh, exclude uh, conversations about new immigrants, refugees, um, uh, and actually uh, first gen, second gen. And then, you know, the growing population in Minnesota is really uh, uh, a growing East African population. So, Dr. Sloss, can you speak to the Minnesota ice? How has poverty really been racialized in America, and how do systems or policies continue to perpetuate some of the what Dr. Myers is talking about? Yeah. So let me um, let me take us back a little bit historically, um, and and back to the question of why is why are disparities so much higher um, in Minnesota? Um, and I'd like to start with a landmark book written by a former president of the American Political Science Association, Ira Katznelson. It's called When Affirmative Action Was White. And the point of the book, uh, which is national in scope, is that the most generous uh, and progressive social policies and policy interventions of the 20th century uh, happened at times and in ways uh, that they were really in a sense, functioned as investments in white communities. Um, they were directed at white communities and uh, black, indigenous, and other people of color tended to be excluded, particularly black people. And so, in many ways, the answer to the Minnesota paradox is buried in that paradox. The fact that we had such progressive policies here lifted white communities up relative to other communities because of exclusion. And I just want to say there's three dimensions to this exclusion. I'll just stop there. But the three are, first of all, there was social exclusion in the sense of that Dr. Myers talked about, discrimination, discrimination against groups and individuals, wherever those policies were. Second, uh, exclusion had a spatial dimension in that here, as in many places outside the South, uh, whites built systems of residential segregation that then allowed for differential uh, investment and increased our disparities. The more generous those investments were in white communities, once again, it increased those disparities. And then the last dimension, which most people don't think about, is the time dimension. 
Um, as recently as 1970, 1.8% of Minnesota's population was classified by the census as non-white. In 1980, it was 3.8, right? And so most of our populations uh, that are black and other people of color in, the United, in, in Minnesota came after that period, right? Rose up in the state after that period. And so in Minnesota, the eras of great social investment were areas of primarily white populations. And large amounts of our black and brown populations in Minnesota arrived after that during the period of austerity politics when investments at the bottom were drying up and policies were favoring the top and inequality was spiraling and wealth and income were becoming concentrated at the top. So in these, all three of these ways, social, spatial, and in terms of time, there was a kind of separation between the investments that lifted up whites, right, and everybody else. Mm -hmm. So, Joe, the, the concentrated investments over a period of time in white communities um, just left other populations uh, behind. Dr. Myers, I know you've, you've looked nationally at some of this. Is Minnesota so different than other states? In other words, is Joe right that our disparities are, are so large because um, the tide that lifted the boats lifted them in a timely manner for the white population of Minnesota? and for black populations and others, indigenous populations in Minnesota, let's not even talk about the Asian American population for now. Um, is that true? And are we worse than other states across the nation? No, I agree uh, with the bulk of what Dr. Salsa said, but with one minor exception, it's kind of like the impression that the progressive policies themselves are what produce the racial gaps. I'm going to try to demonstrate, and this is what my life's work is now, <laughs> that in some um, complex way, the disparities produce the progressive responses. And so look at the aftermath of the riots in the city of Minneapolis. And the outflow of funding, of initiatives, of plans, of uh, corrective uh, mechanisms and letters all over from the CEOs of the top corporations all expressing outrage at this a significant problem with racial gaps. But you see, it turns out that every single time we have a massive uh, uh, crisis, a racial uh, conflict, the progressive policies flow with the intention, at least the initial intention, of narrowing the racial gaps. And I can give you a number of different uh, illustrations, but one of them has to do with child abuse and neglect. Somebody produced a report, it may have been me, that showed that Minnesota had the highest racial gap in uh, reported child abuse and neglect. And I would really let you know that it was tough getting money from the National Institute of Health in order to do this serious piece of analysis because the reviewers said, Minnesota, who cares about Minnesota? If it's New York, if it's California, if it's Texas, we'll give you money to do research. 
But Minnesota, who cares? And my answer to the question of who cares that Minnesota had the highest racial gap in reported child abuse neglect. Well, guess what? After the study, the state legislature mandated an annual report. And the report was a report on disparities. And then all of the child protective services began to mandate racial equity training that this was various sorts of acknowledgement that there's a problem trying to uh, rethink why and how there was a, pro a problem. But the irony of it is that, A, these progressive responses are often short-lived. Mm -hmm. And B, the responses are not about the problem. The problem, as Dr. Sells correctly said, was the fact that whites are privileged. If you develop a, a, a policy response that is baked into the idea that the racial gap is due to something about our small minority growing, but still small yeah. minority. Yeah, I, I think I think that's an I, I think that's an excellent I think that's problem. an excellent point, and I think actually, um, you know, this is. Um, uh, we know, we know, for example, because I am, I am the, the founding dean of the College of Health at the University of St. Thomas. If you've just joined us, and Dr. Samuel Myers, who's an economist, and Dr. Joe Saucer talking about the Minnesota paradox, uh, we know, we know that good health also equals wealth. Uh, the opportunity to be employed, to be served, to have insurance. Uh, we, we also know that there's this thing that's a public safety net. Uh, we just got a question. Um, from one of our, our viewers around uh, public benefits and the safety net system that's been built around uh, human beings. Uh, and, uh, you know, Joe, I know this has been an area of study that you, you, you've had for many years. And uh, what really has struck me over the years of working in uh, government and in nonprofit systems serving those who are low income, particularly families and, and seniors, is that there is often the um, execution of the policies with good intent, but a different mindset, maybe defining the problem in, a, in the wrong way um, as in terms of stigmatizing and what you, you call disciplining the poor, <laughs> really uh, trying to get attitudes and behaviors to shift when the numbers just really don't work. I mean, how have uh, our safety net systems and how we've crafted policies uh, over time in public welfare really perpetuated the gap and or led to solutions? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, this goes back to what I was talking about before, which is that we need to see this on two sides. I think as Dr. Myers rightly said, you know, on one side, uh, these disparities uh, result from a history of repression. Uh, and a history of reaction and all that. And on the other hand, they also reflect the way in which progressive policies have been targeted differently uh, at different racial groups. And so I think if you look at the policies uh, that have really lifted people, either by creating opportunities or by creating strong protections. Those have been policies in the United States that have been, uh, that have covered more white people, uh, that have, where white people have predominated and in some cases, Security, old age insurance, uh, in its early years, actually actively excluded, uh, particularly black people, from those protections. 
And, and then the pattern you see um, repeatedly across social programs, whether you look at child welfare or cash welfare programs, whatever it is, that when people begin to either in reality or symbolically associate a program uh, with people of color, particularly black people, those policies become politically attacked. They become far less generous in their supports, and they move toward the kind of uh, rules and regulations you were describing, my cow, as disciplining um, that, that, you know, really, as Dr. Meyer said, treat uh, the problem as if it resides in the individuals, in their attitudes and choices and behaviors, and try to correct the individual, uh, try to discipline them instead of opening opportunities. So, Joe, does the, does the you know, I have a question from uh, one of the audience members. I mean, you know, I've often heard over the years that our, our really generous public benefits are, um, are incentivizing um, uh, poor black and brown people to move to Minnesota <laughs> and maybe Asian folks too, like myself. I mean, has your research, what has your research shown related to that? Yeah, I've, uh, we, we, I've been involved uh, earlier in my career in a fair amount of welfare migration research. Uh, there's not very good evidence that there's much of it at all. Uh, most people don't move uh, all that much. Uh, when they do move, they tend to move. Poor people tend to move for reasons like a lot of other people, for uh, reasons of employment and opportunities, for reasons of family, uh, because there's a community of immigrants that looks like them and comes from the same place as them. All sorts of reasons uh, that really don't have much to do with the fact that there's $15 more a month in welfare benefits. And it's important to realize here that you know, all of these stories about welfare benefits incentivizing people to move to another state, to have an additional child, uh, to not work, to do all these things, um, really require sort of blinding yourselves to the complexity of full human lives and acting as if this person in some way can be boiled down to wanting just those few extra dollars in some sort of way. And in reality, many of those predictions uh, don't work out in empirical studies. Mm, yeah, that's 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 uh, interesting. So, Dr. Myers, um, can we achieve income equity with without achieving racial equity? That's what we're talking about here. And you know, I often am in uh, all white groups, uh, sometimes all all people of color groups. You know, because of the roles that I've had over time, and oftentimes people uh, have so racialized poverty to be black or to be people of color, um, they forget, yeah. Yes, and they, they forget that the majority of poor Americans are actually still white. So can we achieve economic uh, equity or some form of it without achieving racial equity? Uh, I'm saying be very careful about what you ask for. <laughs> I know that that's a provocative question. Um, and short group inequality are very different things. Mm -hmm. They interact in complex ways uh, even during the Obama administration, there was kind of the belief that you can solve the intergroup inequality problem, meaning the black-white gap, by dealing with the intragroup inequality, and that's the overall widening of the gap between the top and the bottom. And I think, I think this is really dangerous, dangerous, but it is a symptom of progressive policies. Because progressive policies say, if we can solve the problem of racial inequality by solving the problem of overall inequality, then we don't need to talk about race. We could bypass our discussion of race. 
And so my answer to your question is that let's be clear that the evidence does not support the idea that if, and this is the rising tide lifts all shit phenomenon, if you narrow the gaps, if you provide overall levels, like you give everybody $1,000 at birth, like a baby bond. I mean, you know, that's an interesting idea. And even one of the presidential candidates suggested that, but that's not going to solve the problem of intergroup inequality. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the reason why intergroup inequality persists from generation to generation is rooted in ownership. It's rooted in wealth. And the problem is that the wealth inequality isn't going to change until or unless there's A, an explicit redistribution of wealth through something like reparations, or B, the vigorous enforcement of existing laws that have the effect of the existing anti-discrimination laws, which currently aren't being enforced, that have the effect of uh, creating persistence of inequality. And so I have argued time and time again about something small that we can do without dismantling capitalism, without having complete revolution, something really small that we can do. And that is to enforce the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which prohibits discrimination in mortgage lending. Okay, banks are powerful in this state. Banks are powerful in America. I mean, the largest banks are able to dictate policies within the state and local governments because state and local governments have to pay their bills. They have to invest their money. And it turns out that both city of St. Paul and the city of Minneapolis pass ordinances called responsible banking. And responsible banking says, in order for a bank to do business with us, they can't discriminate. In order for a bank to do business with us, they have to allocate uh, some proportion of their loans uh, to uh, disadvantaged communities, to small businesses that are located uh, in the inner city. And it turns out that once that report came out and it said that Wells Fargo got a D, that U.S. Bank got an F, that Twin, uh, Twin Cities Federal got, I think, a C minus. I mean, people, people, people were outraged. And their comments were, how is it possible for U.S. Bank to get a failing grade when U.S. Bank has ATM machine on the corner of Lake and Chicago. And my response is, you know, having ATM machines or like Chicago is actually a small portion of the of the the gray about how well banks are doing. Okay, so what is this about? The vast majority of Americans hold their wealth in a home. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a home, then you don't have access to that form of wealth. Why is home ownership actually quite good in intergenerational transmission of socioeconomic status? It's because the parent who owns their home can use that home as equity for things like, uh, you know, education or down payment for their kids' home and other things. So how do people get homes? Unlike in China, 
unlike in other countries where people in Singapore, where people use their savings in order to purchase home. In the United States, people borrow money. They get mortgages. And then the next thing is, well, why is it that blacks are not getting loans? And it turns out that for a long time, people couldn't answer the question. Mm-hmm. They couldn't answer the question because the data didn't include relevant information that bankers were using in order to make their decisions. And so now, all of a sudden, we have the information, and we still find that there is racial discrimination in mortgage lending. It is non-trivial. It's mm-hmm. not the largest factor, but it's an important factor. So. Yeah. The next question is, why can't we get rid of racial discrimination? And the answer is, oh, no, no, we don't discriminate. We yeah. don't discriminate. What we use is we use desktop underwriting. We use mm-hmm. algorithms. We use the computer. And so it's the computer that's discriminating. And my response yeah. was, where did that computer model come from? Yeah. The information from the computer models actually comes from the past. And so you fake them you've reproduced racial discrimination without even having a discriminator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Myers um, is uh, uh, one of our experts today, and he is uh, Roy Wilkins Professor of Human Relations and Social Justice, and directs the Roy Wilkins Center for Human Relations and, and Social Justice, and is a very well-respected um, uh, social policy uh, person um, within academia and also outside in terms of his thinking around using economic tools and analysis to figure out what is actually going on so that we can move towards solutions. So his point is really that um, we, we have some remedies that are possible and within reach, but we need to actually make them visible and to enforce them. Um, so I agree from all the work that I've done that access to uh, capital uh, for uh, home ownership is a primary way that, that many families get going. And obviously, um, uh, Dr. Joe Sauce, who's Cole's chair for the study of public service at the Humphrey School, drawing on all his experiences, um, both as a political scientist and as a sociologist, would uh, likely agree that um, the relationships we have and, you know, sometimes uh, just who we know in terms of getting our foot in the door uh, with a loan or actually to access a particular benefit that might have been excluded for uh, a poor family can often make a huge difference. Um, so I'm just gonna take this and be very personal and say, you know, I grew up um, on the North End of St. Paul, working class neighborhood. I hit about 200% of poverty in the 10th grade, which meant that I went from free lunch to reduced lunch. So I had to pay 10 cents for lunch uh, as a sophomore in high school. And I didn't know what that meant. Um, I didn't know what that meant. Um, it meant that my parents had reached a level of, of um, uh, in earnings that put, my, put me in a different income strata. Um, and uh, I had never experienced that before. But because uh, one of the recent reports are, you know, you can look at lots of studies about the seven county metropolitan region in particular, but I think this is the hotbed that we're living in with the history of economic, social, and racial segregation in Minnesota, if you look at some of the fair housing studies and where people are spatially located in the seven county area, it shows that we're not just economically segregated, but that we're socially and racially very segregated. 
and uh, actually in the seven county area, one of the most segregated areas within a, a large metropolitan area. Joe, what is that, you know, because your point before was really around uh, relationships and kind of shifting uh, the research question. What can you say about how when we as a region become so segregated, how we can actually move towards solutions? What solutions do you have for us? Well, so let me say, let me start by picking up on, on Dr. Meyer's point about housing, because I think it's a good example. Yes. Um, it is, it's one thing to say, well, uh, here's a disparity between two groups, say a black-white disparity. Um, it's, a, it's a good next step to talk about exclusion, which is what people usually want to talk about, which is that some people have gotten good things and they've, uh, other people have been excluded from it, right, on a racial basis. But what people don't do is often is take that next step of putting it in more relational terms, talking about one group preying on the other. So it's not just that, um, as Dr. Myers rightly said, that black people were not allowed the ability to get the loans, right? It's also that once they were excluded from those loans, it set up the basis for what many scholars call predatory inclusion. Once you're excluded from something you really need, it sets the stage for people to go in and offer you all kinds of predatory deals. Uh, and so black people did have access to loans. They had, they had access to loans and access to home ownership for uh, loans that uh, destroyed their lives financially, homes that fell apart uh, and became monetary sinkholes and that they couldn't sell uh, to improve their standing as white people were able to. So, so all of that, uh, the, the predatory aspect has to be part of this. And so I think as we think about solutions, um, we need to be thinking about both of these sides. We need to be thinking about solutions that open up access uh, to things that people have been excluded from, but also that say, look, if you're being excluded from normal banking terms, we also need to regulate the predatory payday lenders and other people that come in and take advantage of your desperation to strip money out of your uh, community in various ways. So we need to close off the predatory responses and we need to open up uh, the markets to those who are being denied them. Yeah. The only way the predatory lenders can make the money is if the bank lenders are excluding uh, uh, the group. And it turns out that really high credit, high uh, uh, quality borrowers, recognizing a distinction between going to payday lender as opposed to being turned down by a big lender, will just stay out of the market altogether. They end up running and they end up not reproducing wealth for one generation back. But because they are excluded, you don't see the good bars. You don't see the people with good credit. And what the analyst sees, all they see is the bad. Yeah. And it we, kind of creates and sustains the stereotype that black people yeah. have credit. So it occurs to me that, that uh, as Minnesotans, we, we like to be very abstract. We're kind of an intellectual state. I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've been on in when we are intellectualizing uh, race and poverty effects and the people in the community just really want to know if I go to the convenience store and I buy something, am I going to be harmed as a result, you know, because of the neighborhoods that they're living in. So that's the reality for um, uh, our children, actually, who are living in some of these areas, uh, North Minneapolis, Frogtown, South Minneapolis. Um, public education and uh, is, is another really big lever for change. Uh, knowledge, as we know, is power. 
and uh, nationwide, we graduate half our young from high school, nationwide. In the city of Minneapolis, where um, George Floyd was murdered, we, uh, the district is graduating 60%, 67% of our, our students. Um, so there are a lot of kids of color. Uh, St. Paul, it's not too much better. There are too many kids of color who are a bit left behind um, at the starting line of economic success. Um, and, you know, some of this, uh, now I experienced this myself uh, as uh, the CEO of Wilder, but, but still today, um, if you don't have a decent place to lay your head and you're worried about where you're going to find your family at the end of the day, uh, you're having a hard time uh, in school. Can we have more uh, equity in Minnesota uh, without addressing um, the achievement gap? And how would you suggest that we do so using some of the um, research that you have conducted over the years? I mean, I, I think we've tried many things over the years, vouchers, different subsidies, you know what I mean? But uh, because of the spatial, um, the, the social and the time dimensions related to this, and the issues are very much in the current here and now, I think the audience is really interested in understanding what can we do right now? I mean, on these structural issues, especially as it relates to public education. I'm, I'm open to any, either of you uh, commenting on that. I know it's a very broad topic. Well, um, I'll just start by saying that um, you can't disentangle education from all, all the other things. I mean, the, the greatest, um, you know, predictors of how people do in our schools are their social position, not just race, but poverty and class and uh, other sorts of social positioning. Many, in many ways, uh, educational institutions reproduce the social inequalities uh, that we already have. And, and I think that it's really important here to... Um, if I can use a metaphor that people in my field sometimes use to study inequality, the, the game of, of musical chairs, right? Um, you can have a game of musical chairs with 10 chairs and 12 people, and I can take out the two people who keep losing and not getting a chair, and I can train them, I can educate them, I can uh, teach them to watch for a signal of when the person's going to stop the music and to, and to be quicker off their foot to get into the chair. And, and I may be able to show, in fact, I might be able to do a, a randomized controlled trial, you know, gold standard evidence showing that by training them in this way, they were more likely to get a seat. But at the end of the game, I didn't change the structure. There's still going to be two people without seats. And in many ways, what we do with many of our training interventions and our focus on education is change who is getting uh, opportunities, and that's really important. But we have to deal with the structure of the game itself um, as well. You have to change not just the ability of one person or another to get into the seat, but how many seats there are um, fundamentally. Uh, so I would say, yes, we need to have educational interventions. Uh, the, the unequal investments and the unequal resources and uh, many of the inequalities in schooling are important, but that's not, that is the answer that Americans most like to look to um, is education. And you've got to change the rest of things as well. So Joe, are both political parties, I mean, since you're a political scientist, culpable and guilty of, um, of doing this, of, of not you know, of, of really uh, uh, continuously redefining um, the problem, but not really coming up with policy remedies uh, that will actually lead to structural change. 
I think it's not a, um, you're asking in a yes or no way, and I guess I'd be hesitant to say, yes, there equal culpability is not the question. The question is, has either party done anything that's fundamentally, right, uh, created a more racially just and equitable system? And my answer would be, neither party has gone that far, though in no way are the two parties uh, equal or the same in how they've approached these issues or what they've tried to promote as solutions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, living in the, the, the world of here and now, uh, most, most ordinary Americans just want real solutions that they can tangibly touch and experience. Um, and I find that most people are really disconnected with the policymaking process and understanding that, you know, on the um, historical dimension, it's been really less than 60 years since women, women and people of color and frankly, poor people have had the full rights of citizenship in terms of casting a vote and having that enforced. So if we talk about the stacked up inheritance and the intergenerationally um, uh, populations that, that haven't had transfers across the generations, uh, we can say that this is a, a large part of America, but most people really don't, don't understand that or they haven't um, really thought about it in those terms. Um, so uh, one of the things that I am uh, thinking a lot about these days, and I know Dr. Myers, you have actually done research in the, this area, and, and Dr. Sauce, you as well, um, uh, going back to the criminalization of and the punishment of low-income populations and, and populations of color, sometimes um, uh, the lack of access to uh, poor mental health services, uh, disability services, um, have actually led to uh, some of what we're seeing um, in society. How does uh, health and poverty and race converge? I mean, we've talked a lot about race and we've talked a lot about poverty, but from your perspective, how is staying healthier, being healthier, having access to that in these um, neighborhoods really affecting uh, how, how kids and families are performing? Dr. Miles, I'll start with you. I'm glad that you're asking about health because, uh, as Dr. Sauce pointed out, things like educational inequality can't be uh, looked at in, uh, in, the, uh, in a vacuum without looking at the nexus of other things. And so one example has to do with suspension rates. So there's this huge racial gap in Minnesota, in particular in Minneapolis and the St. Paul Public Schools, and suspension rates. And I'm not talking about in-school suspension, I'm talking about out-of-school suspension. And it turns out that there's a very close statistical relationship between math scores and suspension rates, as well as attendance rates. If you're suspended, that means you're not in school. If you're teaching fractions today, that means that you're not going to learn percents tomorrow, because all of these different components of math are taught sequentially. But it turns out why, why are black males and Hmong males and native males will likely be suspended. And the answer is, we don't know how to maintain order in the class because the way we are teaching the class is that we're teaching people to sit in their seats and to answer questions, but not to speak up. And so some of the brightest people I know that I grew up with were absolutely misfits in the classroom, but they were brilliant. And so here's the issue with it. Is it possible that there are mental health issues? Is it possible that there are diet issues? Are there possible? So there are actually two things going on, number one. One is the way we teach in our public schools 
kind of mandates behavior, mandates a particular form of acquiescence to power, to inequality. That's one issue. The second issue is there are some people who have uh, learning disabilities. There are some people who think different ways and in the absence of good mental health, good physical health, we don't know who they are. And so we just assume that they are cr criminals. We suspend them and then they're running the streets and then they get picked up by juvenile uh, authorities and they get sucked into the criminal justice system. And we ask the question, what's a cost-effective way in order to solve this problem? And what cost-effective way is get rid of suspension and replace suspension with uh, in-class uh, testing, uh, um, you know, exercises, valuing and uh, highlighting people's strengths. So somebody draws well, somebody has excellent voice, somebody's able to do abstract thinking instead of putting them in a box where they have to memorize something, why don't we put them into a classroom where their uh, uh, um, innate abilities are being uh, highlighted. And so yeah. my main point is that many of the observed inequalities that we uh, I've been talking about are uh, intimately related to health, but we've never made that link yeah. in the past. We yeah. have health over here, we have education over here, we have transportation over here. They're all viewed as separate entities, and maybe yeah. we should be developing a more holistic understanding of what these racial disparities mean. Yeah. I think uh, I think that's an excellent point, and actually, it's it's one of the reasons why at the University of St. Thomas, the College of Health has uh, the programs that relate to family and community factors, as well as uh, just medicine and health interventions. Um, so, Dr. Sass, um, what what is your take on uh, health and its relationship with uh, the issue that we're we're speaking to right now? I'll have you la have the last word, and then. I'm going to wrap us up because I can't believe this, but an hour has already gone by. So, a few thoughts from you, and then we'll be done. I'm going to I'm going to uh, connect this to health in a way that makes a broader point about the Minnesota paradox. Uh, I hope. Um, uh, you know, I think it's really important. We haven't talked much about how people think and what people want and what people will tolerate and push for in the public in this conversation. And that's, of course, what a lot of people mean with the Minnesota paradox. Uh, how is it that people can have these attitudes and want liberal things and still have these inequalities? And I did a study with some people, uh, some colleagues a few years ago on health disparities. Um, and it was very striking. We took the same disparities and in surveys we randomized uh, whether we described these disparities, some people who answered the survey, they were described as, as disparities along the line of education. For other people, the exact same disparities were, des were described as an income. People who are wealthier have less of this problem than people who are poor. And for a third group, they were, de they were described as racial disparities between blacks and whites in particular. And the interesting thing was, relative to the other two, when you took the exact same disparities, and describe them in terms of race, American people who are surveyed in this, in this study uh, were less likely to be troubled by them, were more likely to believe that there was nothing government could do about them, and were more likely to believe that there was probably some sort of individual or personal or even biological reason why they existed. And so I think we have to reckon here 
in some ways with the power of right race, not just as a social structure, but also as a mental structure. Um, and I think we have to think here a little bit, and this is the final point I'll, I'll leave on, you know, political scientists have been studying for decades what we call the principal policy gap, which is that people will say in a survey that they're absolutely committed to and very much want um, to close racial gaps, to make, uh, to achieve racial equality, and in the very same surveys will decline to support, white Americans will decline to support every possible option that uh, you could pursue for a concrete policy to achieve those things, right? And so in many ways against that backdrop, Minnesota is not such a mystery. Um, we have a lot of people in this state who would like to say, who say and probably genuinely believe that they would like to have a more racially just state, but they also decline to support, particularly where the rubber meets the road when people start to talk about changing institutions and policies, decline to support those changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what I've gotten from this conversation, I will wrap up, this was a, a wonderful uh, dialogue to have with two very um, uh, prestigious and uh, well-renowned, I would say, uh, scholars. Um, if you, the third, if you, you include myself, um, but I'm not, I'm not doing much scholar, many scholarly duties now as Dean. Um, I would say that the Minnesota paradox has been uh, fueled by uh, a good value system, um, but that our say-do ratio is pretty low uh, in terms of structural reform. Um, and to narrow that uh, gap in and of itself probably won't, won't solve the problem, which is where we've been fixated uh, and what we've been looking at. Um, even in the uh, academia, we could ask questions from a different perspective, use the tools that we have and actually generate uh, better and uh, better policy solutions uh, to recommend. So I just want to thank both of you so much for your willingness to engage in this conversation. And uh, we will end here. I hope the audience has learned uh, a lot from listening to all of us. I know I have, and I'm grateful to be living in the state of Minnesota where we have people like Dr. Myers and Dr. Sauce who can help us think through these issues. Thank you very much. Thank you.